in my mind as investigators, we put ourselves in those cages with the animals and no one is understanding what those animals are going through more than the investigator does. Mm. We exist in solidarity with them. We see them every single day. We think of them when we're awake and when we're trying to fall asleep. Every single day they're on our minds. And even when we leave the field and go back home, we're still there with them. Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and questions. Please get in touch with me. My email is hope at upc-online.org. So today we have a very special interview on the podcast. Aaron Wing was an undercover investigator for two years, and I'm dedicating the whole show to Aaron because it was such a powerful and poignant interview. Something that we don't mention in the interview is just how young Erin is. She was only 25 when she started her investigations, and I think that that just adds an element of amazement to her story of bravery. Of course, undercover investigators use hidden cameras to show the world videos and images and tell the stories of what the animals endure in animal agriculture. And they emerge from these dark, horrible places with images that words just can't convey. It's incredibly dangerous work. I don't think people realize just how dangerous this work is. So not only is the work itself just physically dangerous, farm work has an incredibly high rate of injury. It's also psychologically traumatizing because in order to get the footage, these investigators have to go along with whatever cruelty is happening to the animals, whatever procedures or abuses are happening for weeks or months. And, you know, they have to pretend that they are just part of the business as usual. They also have the added element of fear that they could be discovered at any time. It's truly incredible that they can do what they do. They are true superheroes of the movement. When I interview people for the podcast, I often ask what gives them hope for the future. And most people say that it's it's young people, it's the younger generation that give them hope. And they'll say things like that they get it, that they understand the urgency to change this world. And just like that young poet laureate, Amanda Gorman, how she gave that impassioned speech at the inauguration that she had written, and it just felt way beyond her years. Erin Wing is another young woman who also holds a maturity well beyond her years. I was really struck by Erin's maturity, by her sense of purpose, of self-awareness, and it gave me a sense that the future of animal advocacy is in very good hands. So here is her amazing interview. 
Okay, I would like to bring in our guest now. Today we have Erin Wing, and she is a longtime animal lover and became a supporter of the animal advocacy movement after watching documentaries like Cowspiracy and Food Inc. and Earthlings. And the undercover footage featured in these films inspired her to become an investigator for uh, Animal Outlook. And for two years, she documented conditions on dairy farms and in the chicken industry, as well as in aquaculture. And we're going to talk all about that. And then after retiring from doing these undercover investigations, she is continuing the work with Animal Outlook, assisting new investigators as the deputy director of investigations. So we are so happy to have her here today to tell her story. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for having me, Hope. Yeah, we're uh, so happy that you could join us. And I would really love to hear how you got into this work of being an undercover investigator. I don't think many people realize, you know, just kind of what it is really, and just how dangerous the work is and how courageous you really have to be to do it. So explain what undercover investigating is and how you got started. Well, thank you um, very much for just mentioning how much work goes into it. I, yeah. I, I would have to say to that on the danger related to it. Well, I, Personally, in my circumstances, I, I didn't have the best childhood, so I was actually very familiar with danger at a very young age. Mm. I was raised by a single mother in low-income communities and very unsafe environments, and I survived a lot of abuse and trauma dealt out to me at the hands of other people. Mm. But my upbringing and what I endured in life was actually what helped to make me more compassionate. I always wanted others to be treated fairly the way I wish to be treated. Mm. I um, also had a really great connection with animals. Whenever I encountered an animal, I knew that through our interaction, there was a lot of love and affection exchanged whenever I pet them or whenever I would just spend time with them. So I, I was also aware in a way as well that if they were hurt by someone, they had to endure that pain in silence. So I had a lot of experiences where I witnessed, you know, someone trying to hurt an animal and I would immediately intervene. Hmm. And I've, res I've rescued dogs, cats, crows, really had that passion for just wanting to be the one protecting them. So for a long time, I knew that animals needed protection, but I never knew what the best thing was that I could do for them. And I, I did go vegetarian about five years ago, but I was always looking for the next thing to do. What's, what's the next step from that? And about four years ago, I watched all these documentaries featuring investigations and, and the investigations footage that was featured in there made me think, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could be that person. And at the time, I was working this regular job uh, in retail sales, trying to support my mother and uh, younger siblings financially. And I was worried about them, but I felt this unshakable call to action that I just couldn't ignore. And I, I did see the wonderful work that Animal Outlook at the time 
uh, uh, Compassion Over Killing was the name of this organization, but Animal Outlook was was doing really great work and I wanted to be a part of that. So I ended up applying to become an undercover investigator. Wow, that's a really powerful story. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that uh, you had difficulty in your childhood and, uh, you know, what you went through. And it's interesting that it seems like that gave you the strength to be able to do uh, what you did with the undercover investigating, um, not only bringing out the compassion for animals, but having the strength to uh, endure very difficult work. So tell us a little more about what an undercover investigator does. I mean, how you're, you're getting a job and you are not letting them know what your intentions are. How, how does all that work? Right. Um, yeah. So a lot of people are very curious about this line of work because it is, it is, it is uh, so niche and there are a lot of different elements to it. But essentially what an undercover investigator does is we use completely legitimate information, our name, our personal information, all of that. And we go into these facilities that are operating within the industrial animal agriculture system. And we apply to these facilities to work as employees doing the same standard practices, same tasks that are expected of an employee. And, and we document and we witness we bear witness essentially to what the animals are experiencing in these facilities because they don't have the ability to do that for themselves. And a lot of these facilities are operating behind closed doors and they don't want whatever is going on behind the scenes here to come out into the light to where the public could react to the things that I've documented personally, where there are cows being dragged by tractors, dirt and feces and dairy facilities. There are chickens who are being stomped on in certain uh, chicken farms as well. All of these things are what undercover investigators are there to document and make available to the public so that consumers can be aware of what exactly is going into the food that they're choosing to eat, to inspire them to make better choices. And eventually, we're working towards a future where animals are not exploited for profit. So your most recent investigation was of a dairy farm. Tell us about that experience. What did you find there? Right. So just last year, I investigated Dick Van Dam Dairy. This was an industrial dairy farm in Southern California. I was there for about two months and I worked as a milker, and nearly every single day I was there, I witnessed cows being kept in the most torturous conditions, suffering brutal beatings, being forced to give birth to babies just to watch them slowly die in the dirt, all while having their milk taken from them for humans to consume. Workers would also use wooden canes, and in some cases, a metal pipe was used by a supervisor to strike cows in their legs mm. and all over their bodies mm. just to force them into the milking areas. And cows collapsed from overexertion and then had to endure workers attaching metal hip clamps to their hips and dragging them from tractors. I 
actually documented one cow who was lifted up by her hips and they had her suspended in the air, uh, practically swinging about 50 feet in the air uh, from a tractor bucket after she had collapsed in the milking area and she was slowing up the production line. Um, There were also sick cows unable to walk or stand who once they outlived their usefulness to the facility, they were just abandoned in empty pen, empty pens with no access to food or water where they were left to die. And then baby cows even were tossed aside like trash and left to rot in the hot sun mm. in the same, very same pens their mothers were kept in. Mm. Uh, honestly, it, it was a nightmare and one of the hardest investigations of my career. Mm. Oh God, that's horrible. And and what was interesting to me to hear was that they, that there were babies that were dying because, you know, we think about the horrors of the babies being taken away from the mothers and the, you know, just psychological trauma to, to both the mothers and the babies from them being taken away. But in this situation, the babies, they were just dying. Was it the males? What was going on with that? Right. So there, I I do actually recall there possibly, it might've been an article that um, mentioned that the killing of male calves at a lot of dairy facilities was dairy's dark secret in a way. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that male calves are not seen as profitable within the dairy industry. And right, because because veal is actually becoming kind of out of fashion now. There's they, they can only so, sell so many males for veal, but n- nobody's really buying veal now. So the babies, I mean, that was horrible enough, but now they're just kind of worthless, right? That's exactly correct, and that was what was reflected at the at the dairy facility I investigated, mm-hmm. where they would check what gender these calves were and if they were female they were taken away to eventually be grown into milk producers themselves as the as the dairy industry sees them as and the males would just be left there without any veterinary care without any concern for their lives they were left there in the hot sun in the dirt just to slowly die uh, painful deaths oh it's awful Oh, I'm sorry that you had to witness that firsthand, but thank you for doing that so that we can show the world what's happening. So you also investigated a chicken meat farm, correct? A a broiler chicken facility. What was that like? Yeah, so that was actually my very first investigation. And that was at a a chicken meat farm in, in Virginia. And that facility was contracted to Tyson Foods. That was my first real experience with how bad that industry truly is. And I had watched documentaries featuring undercover footage before, but you can't have the burning of the ammonia fumes in the investigator's nostrils come through a screen. Mm, You can't convey how strong the smell of feces and urine is. And you, you can't convey how loud it is inside those sheds. 
mm. when thousands of chickens are packed in with no room to move and what the bo- the dead bodies of those chickens feel like in your hands when you're picking them up after they've been wasting away in a shed until they've turned into this corpse that is completely unrecognizable from their natural form. Mm. I I documented workers as well, stomping on chickens, impaling days old chicks at the ends of these crude weapons that were fashioned out of plastic pipes with metal nails driven into the ends of them. And there were also baby chicks who would be writhing in buckets filled and piled high with dead bodies after their heads were ripped off. If they were too sick or injured or if they didn't grow fast enough. And when they did grow at the rate the industry desires for them to grow at, they suffered from painful deformities and injuries. Their legs would buckle under the weight of their own bodies, Mm. making it really difficult for them to even get access to food or water. So just that entire investigation was an eye-opener for sure. It was incredibly brutal. And nothing could have prepared me for it. Hmm. Oh God, that's oh, that's sickening. You said that that the workers were fashioning weapons of some kind. They actually like created weapon weapons to 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 hit the animals. Yes. So at that particular site that I investigated, the manager there. He mentioned that the chicks were very fast. And it's also in the investigations footage and the uh, investigation release video where he is quoted saying that they're fast. And he was telling me, even if I couldn't catch them, to hit them on the head and then that would kill them. And that method of attempting to kill these chicks is completely inaccurate and it resulted in workers who I documented at the facility fashioning these tools in order to hit these chicks in in their heads but they would miss completely impale their bodies I documented one worker holding up a the body of a chick who had been impaled on a metal nail and they were writhing in agony and he was showing me something that was wrong with their their backside or something that was abnormal about them but i was just floored with how callous and how how used to that violence he was to where he was completely okay with showing me the body of this chick who was still alive and impaled on this metal nail oh aaron i'm oh my god i'm i'm so sorry that you had to witness all of that So you also did an investigation of a fish farm, and this is really, really interesting because there's there's very little, it's a very hidden world. There's very little video footage of fish farming, also called aquaculture. So it's really important that you did this investigation. I'm curious what you found there and what, what is a, you know, what is a fish farm? What is it like? Explain first uh, kind of what, what it, what the facility was like uh, and then what you saw there. Yeah, actually, um, you know, way before that investigation, 
I remember reading an article that was titled Fish, the Forgotten Farmed Animal. And that resonated with me because fish are very complex beings. And I think that there's still a lot we need to learn and understand about them. And I think that that could help influence our perception of them and how much compassion that the general public can develop for them. And I, I personally hadn't had any very close interactions or spend any amount of time in close contact with fish before I walked into that salmon hatchery that was, that is, because it's still operating, owned by Cook Aquaculture in the small town in Maine called Bingham. And I honestly was really surprised when I walked into that facility and I saw millions of fish hidden away in these large tanks that contained no enrichment inside of the tanks. They were just filled with water and there were fish just packed in there, swimming in these constant circles with artificial currents running through the water. And they were just forced to be present in those conditions where the water was riddled with fungus they were dying by the thousands in these really poor conditions and by also by slow suffocation after being tossed into empty buckets like trash. And at this facility, I was witnessing the fish throughout every, um, nearly every single stage of their life cycle. So they would come in as eggs and a lot of the eggs would die out in very tremendous numbers by the thousands, they would die on a daily basis in most cases, and they would just be tossed into the empty buckets. And then we would move on to the next tanks where they would be in the fry stage of growth. And they would also die in the hundreds, and then they would be tossed into empty buckets where they would either suffocate if they were deformed, they would be taken out of the water and thrown in the empty bucket, or they would already be dead and be present in that tank and those dead bodies wouldn't be removed until workers had a chance to get to them. And if the dead bodies weren't removed in time, they would grow this fungus that would spread like an infection throughout the tank and infect the other live fish and kill them eventually as well. Can I ask a question? So, And, and just to clarify, I think the fry stage is, is a juvenile stage, correct, of uh, salmon. Is that what you were talking about? Yes, that is correct. And right. I apologize for not having some clarification for that. That's I was okay. I was actually having to, you know, learn that myself when I was yeah. present at the facility. Yeah, and 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 so you were talking about them being taken out and thrown into the buckets. Were these the the fish that were to be sold, or were these just fish that were sick and they just wanted to get them out of the tanks? So I don't understand. Right. So if they were sick or injured or deformed. And there were a lot of deformities in a lot of the tanks there. A lot of deformities I observed in fish who had spines that were curved and they would swim around in very tight circles, uh, not being able to access any feed or be able to swim in a way that is natural for fish to swim. Mm. Uh, I also witness fish with 
deformities that would cause them to have two heads or be conjoined oh. uh, by the stomach. And there were a lot of cases of, of deformities or injuries or sickness, and those fish would be taken out of the water and then just tossed into empty buckets to suffocate. And now that is the method that they use there at Cook Aquaculture to kill the fish who were undesirable or they had no desire to treat them with any veterinary care mm-hmm. at all. And suffocation, of course, is a, a just a prolonged, horrible death. It's similar to us drowning and it can take you know, agonizing minutes. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible way to die. Yes. Yes. And not only that, but they would pile them into these buckets and then eventually the fish would be taken out to this large pit that was referred to as the mort pit. Casually, it was essentially a pit where they just filled. And it was called, I'm sorry, the what pit? The mort pit, which is short for the mortality pit. Oh, okay. And that was where, essentially, in black and white terms, that was a pit where they just tossed the bodies of fish by the hundreds of thousands wow. into that large pit where they would it would just fester and and they there were live fish that were thrown in this pit and they would swim in that pit until they would eventually die and they would be swimming through the dead bodies of other fish. So how long did you work there and and what kind of footage did you get? So for three months I worked at this facility as a fish technician. And aside from the horrible conditions that I documented fish being forced to live in at that plant, I also documented workers stomping on fish tossing them around without any concern for their safety. They would slam fish against the sides of concrete tanks to kill them. And that was their method of killing larger fish. And through it all, the fish were unable to vocalize their pain, but I could see it in their body language. As I was watching fish being tossed against the sides of concrete tanks, being hit against metal poles, and also with one worker stomping on the head of a fish. I remember seeing their bodies, their lifeless bodies in the snow as well, because it was it was uh, winter at the time in Maine, and they were piling the bodies in the snow, and, and the snow was turning red just from the blood running through the snow. Uh, from the dead bodies of these fish. And it's it's just so heartbreaking because there seemed to be such a, a callous regard towards their lives. But after I spent so much time with them and after holding the bodies of newborn baby fish in the palms of my hands and feeling them move, looking into their eyes, I got a chance to gain an understanding of them as living beings. And my investigation, now that it's out there and people can have that view into what the world of salmon farming is really like, I hope that it exposes what lurks beneath the surface of salmon fish farming and then also opens the eyes for many consumers out there to inspire them to make better choices with their diet. 
Wow, that's really so powerful. And to hear about the the little newborn fish and that you could hold in your hand, how beautiful. Uh, yeah, and, and I think people really don't realize the complexity, like you said in the beginning, that fish have, and they have certainly been scientifically proven to feel pain, uh, just as we do, and and they're psychologically and emotionally complex like us as well, and that has been scientifically documented. Thank you so much for for doing this investigation, how powerful that we now have the stories of these fish and the video uh, to show what's really going on in this hidden world of aquaculture. So I'm really glad you did that. Thank you. Yeah. So Aaron, what was the hardest part of doing this work, this undercover investigative work? I'm, I'm sure that seeing all the suffering was just unimaginable, and I'm sure that that was a huge part of it. But also a part of it is that you kind of have to detach from society at the time, right? You can't be on social media and reveal yourself as a vegan or anything like that, right? Because you don't want to be discovered by your coworkers or management. So what is that like? And, and I mean, it's got to be really incredibly challenging as well. What would you say was the, the hardest part of doing this work? Yeah, uh, to be honest, I really didn't miss social media that much. Oh, that's good. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've never been t- particularly tech savvy. So that, that wasn't an issue for me to disconnect from all of that. Okay, good. Yeah, I think the hard part of it was just, you know, the intense isolation. Yeah. Just the isolation and spending days in a single room by myself, not being able to communicate with anyone, not wanting to most of the time because I was working through a lot of issues with what I was witnessing animals going through. Do do you mean that you had to separate yourself like from friends and family? Is that what you mean or... Yeah, I actually, I didn't really have a huge desire to speak with family or friends because it it was like they wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. And especially living in a a family, being part of a family where my mother at the time was not really understanding why I was vegan, why I cared so much about animals. So she didn't really see the inherent importance in the work I was doing. And I had never really been one with a large friend group. So it, it, it was just to where I, I was really settled in the isolation. And also there was just that feeling of being alone that comes with being an investigator in the middle of nowhere, knowing no one and doing such intense work that is really um, hard. Mm. on your mental health state and and very hard to endure physically and mentally. Yeah. What did you do for self-care to help heal from this trauma, the trauma that you witnessed? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question because I thought about it a lot and I came to a particular conclusion that I don't know if it applies to all investigators, but in my mind as investigators, we put ourselves in those cages with the animals for years in most cases when we're in the field. 
and no one is understanding what those animals are going through more than the investigator does. Mm. We exist in solidarity with them. We see them every single day. We think of them when we're awake and when we're trying to fall asleep. Every single day they're on our minds. And even when we leave the field and go back home, we're still there with them. And there's a tremendous amount of guilt that comes with leaving the field as an undercover investigator. It's hard to leave that behind because in a way, when I was in that space, it felt like I was leaving behind all the animals and going back home to my life. It was hard to rediscover happiness in where I was and enjoying it. And I I lived for two years as the shell of a person who just became whoever I needed to be at any given time. So it wasn't easy to go back to, I guess, normal life. Yeah. And it wasn't until just a couple months ago when I intended, I attended a farmed animal advocates meditation retreat and it was hosted by some wonderful members of the movement that was when I was able to finally process everything that happened and learn these really great techniques for mental health management. So I'm I'm really thankful for that. And I'm so grateful that I realize now that I'm part of such a loving, kind community. I didn't really feel that while I was in the field, but now I get to really experience that part of being within the animal rights movement that is really rewarding and, and accepting. And yeah, and there's a lot more of that now. I mean, I've um, I've been in the movement for for 30 years, and we didn't have the kind of support that we have now years ago and decades ago. Uh, just in the last few years, we're really embracing the understanding that we have to have wellness around advocacy and self care, and just to be sure that our we're mentally strong and able to endure what we have to witness. Uh, and to you as an undercover investigator, there's a whole nother level, you know, of, of deeper trauma probably from actually really being there. So I'm glad that there is more, more resources and more communication and discussion and workshops and all kinds of things happening now around self-care. And we just had actually an activist, uh, Uni Namudaripad, on the podcast recently, and he has a wellness retreat that's coming up in February. So yeah, there's all kinds of, of things happening like that. I'm, I'm really glad. Yeah, it's so important to recognize that we're exposing ourselves to a lot of trauma and and we do want to bear witness to what the animals are going through and no one understands that in the collective society where they're on the outside looking in but we want to as advocates expose ourselves to that content because we don't want to look away and we want to know that we're fully aware and conscious of what these animals are going through. But there's also another thing that goes into that, that I never realized because I would just you know, see something, see an investigation and say, I need to watch this right away. I need to watch it over and over and over again, just so that I know that I'm fully aware and I'll think about it after I'm done watching it. And it's really important to realize that that's, 
that's really great, but we also have to take care of ourselves so that we're at a point to where we are 100% or close to 100% okay with our mental health so that we can be great advocates for these animals. Right. And we can sustain it and continue into, you know, years and years uh, to be able to do it. And and it's interesting because I know you're young and like I said, I've been in this for a while and it it can get to a point where, and I know a lot of people do get to this point where it is very hard to watch the videos anymore. Uh, and and I've kind of come to that place where I kind of, I'm almost at like a saturation point where, you know, 30 years of it, <laughs> it's almost too much now. Yeah. Uh, and and even your stories earlier in the podcast, I, I was choking up. I don't want to make it sound like people have to bear witness or you have to watch it, uh, you know, to be a good vegan or to be a good activist. Uh, that's not necessarily the case if it's too much for you. You know, don't don't force yourself. But I know that for for people like me and people like you, it is important for us to bear witness and to know what's happening so we can relay the animals' stories and their anguish uh, to others. Definitely. Because of the investigations that you and other brave activists have done, we now have endless hours of footage of the horrors of animal agriculture. And because of that, the industry is responding to the concerns. And we're now seeing labels like cage-free and free-range and organic. And, and there have been investigations of those farms as well. And we're seeing you know, the same horrors. I and others in the movement call this the humane hoax or the humane myth with all these new alternative labels. So what do you think about this shift in the industry? I I really see it as a bit of mental gymnastics in a way, right? They're claiming we're better now because we're free range, we're organic. And uh, an example of that is actually that uh, my last investigation in California, it was mentioned in a recent New York Times article that asked the question, is dairy farming cruel to cows? And the article highlighted organic dairy facilities as the standard for the industry. And to me, organic, free range, it's all like the industry is jumping through these hoops and hurdles to continue this antiquated practice of farming animals for food. Even when there's a wealth of plant-based alternatives readily available, even when the world is suffering due to pandemics and the planet is suffering and human health is declining, the animal agriculture system still wants to perpetuate all this for profit. And it's mind-boggling to me. And how crazy are you about money to do everything you can to keep this broken system going Mm. is my overall question. But on a more positive note, the fact that there are all of these movements and and organizations and the animal rights advocacy movement as a whole to the point where where we could influence this system. And it lets us know that they are not above reproach, that they are trying to win back, quote unquote, win back the hearts and minds of consumers because they are being exposed to what exactly is going on behind the closed doors of these facilities. And they're demanding better. 
and hopefully with investigations continuing to expose what is actually going on at these facilities, even when they are organic, even when they are free range, as they claim. As long as we can keep doing that, people can get closer and closer to realizing maybe we shouldn't be trying so hard to make this work. Maybe we should be looking at a better alternative for our health, for the animals, and for our environment. Yeah, absolutely. That's really well said. So was there an individual animal that touched you along the way that you'd like to tell their story? Yes, uh, there was actually during my last investigation that I mentioned earlier at that dairy facility in California, I was able to rescue a calf named Samuel. And I remember just how hard that was for me uh, physically, because at that point it was the end of the investigation. I'd been there for two months and my mind and body were just completely worn down by that point. And I was going to have that opportunity during those last few days if I could just hold out. And I made that conscious effort and decision to stay there, even though I had that opportunity to go home because uh, we do, in the investigations department, we do prioritize the health and safety of our investigators. But I made that decision myself when I was in the field at the time to stay there because I had that, that ability, that chance, that rare chance to rescue Sam from that situation. And I was able to do that. And I held out for a couple more days, even though I had witnessed workers screaming at these cows, striking them all over their bodies with wooden canes and in, in some cases, a metal pipe as well. And all the horrific treatment the cows and calves were subjected to there. I stayed there, even knowing that it was going to be rough. Those last couple days, I was able to get Samuel out of there. And he was able to escape that life of being just another number in the dairy industry. And I was able to leave that last site with him. And that's something that I cherish to this day. The chance to see him frolicking, happy, enjoying his life free from exploitation and cruelty at Animal Place Sanctuary in California. To see him just enjoying his life, it's amazing. And it just fills me with joy. And he's a living, breathing reminder of what we're all working towards, which is a better future for these farmed animals. Oh, what a beautiful story. Little Samuel, I love it. So Erin, you are now the Deputy Director of Investigations for Animal Outlook. So tell us about that job. What does that entail? Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to Animal Outlook for giving me the opportunity to continue working in investigations in a different role. I, I get to assist our investigators in the field and conduct research to support future investigations. And I also get to participate in awesome interviews like this one. Mm. And as a former investigator, being able to support new investigators, I'm really glad that our organization recognizes the value in that in the fact that I am working as deputy director of investigations alongside 
Scott David, who is the director of investigations, and he is more closely involved with conducting our investigations on a daily basis. He's also a former investigator, and he was an investigator for two years. So there's so much value in knowing what the investigators are going through and having lived that life to where we can give accurate guidance and also give accurate counsel as well to where we can speak to the investigators on that level where we know what they're going through. It's, it's really great that I have the opportunity to do that and to continue working with investigations, recognizing that that's the window that we get into the unvarnished reality of factory farming without physically being there ourselves. And we need to keep that window open as long as possible because that's how we hear the voices of those animals. That's how we see what they're going through. And I'm glad I'm contributing to keeping that window open. So I did, I wanted to ask you about ag-gag laws. And this is something that's, that's, it's kind of a response or a countering to uh, undercover investigations and the success of undercover investigations. And certain states are passing these ag-gag laws that criminalize uh, or make it more difficult for people to do undercover investigations. Can you explain what those ag-gag laws are and if you have any experience or thoughts about them? Yeah, so essentially what these laws do is they prevent the general public from being aware of what is truly going on at these uh, facilities that are within the animal agriculture system. And as undercover investigators, all that we want to do and all that we are concerned about is documenting the reality of what is happening behind the closed doors of these facilities and making that documentation, whether it be visual, uh, whether it be audio, all of it, making it available to the public so that they can have the ability to be empowered with their decision-making process when it comes to the food that they choose to consume. And the industry is, they want a system where they have ultimate say and influence over how people relate to the food that they consume. We want to make it so that we're able to go into these facilities document what's happening. If nothing is wrong, as these industries claim, then there should be no problem with documenting the day-to-day -day reality of what is truly going on at these facilities and making that available to the public. If animal agriculture is fine, if it is natural and it is wholesome, as these industries claim that, that it is, what is the problem with making that information and making whatever they're doing at these facilities available to the public, right. uh, allow people to be empowered to make their own decisions about what they choose to consume, and don't try to dig your heels in and keep that away from, keep that knowledge away from the people you're claiming to care about when it comes to their overall health and well-being. And I think that making that information known to the public as well through undercover investigations. That's also a way to have people realize that these animals are living beings and 
they don't deserve the life that they are being forced to live. The animal agriculture system is afraid of people opening their eyes to that reality. So it's, it's really hard what um, we have to go up against as investigators, but I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to be involved in that because it's very important to the movement as a whole. So Erin, what gives you hope for the future? That's a really good question. You know, I've, I've seen the worst of what people can be capable of in my life, not just as an undercover investigator. And through all of that, I, I still hope, I still have that dream of a better future. I've seen a lot of pain and anguish that animals are forced to go through, but I've also seen this large collective movement of dedicated, compassionate, amazing individuals working every single day for these animals. And we've recognized their right to live free from exploitation to the point where we dedicate all our time and effort to taking on these seemingly monolithic entities and challenging centuries old practices just to free them from that life. I think that's incredible. And on behalf of all those animals, I'm helping to make their voices heard. And in that journey, I've seen people who held these preconceived notions on what our relationship with animals should be for their entire lives, change the way they look at the world and become inspired to change their diets for the benefit of those animals. And that's all because of the continued dialogue, the investigations footage where they get to see that reality of what these animals are living through. And through continued education that a lot of these organizations are responsible for getting out there to the general public so that they can make their own decisions. And usually I've seen positive interactions and it's, it's really great. So I have that dream for the future, that hope that through all this misery and sadness I've seen in my life, I still haven't lost that belief that there's goodness inside us all. And we're all working to be better than we were the day before. We have this capacity to learn and grow, and every day is a new chance to do that. I'm seeing so many people engage with it more and more year by year, so it really makes me hopeful uh, through everything that's happening and everything that we've had to endure uh, just last year. Now, every, every single day is an opportunity to move closer and closer to that better future for farmed animals everywhere. So I want to thank you for talking to us today and thank you for your courage to do these investigations. It's just really powerful and we are so indebted to you and other investigators to tell these animals' stories firsthand. So thank you so much for the work that you've done. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. It's so inspiring to hear Erin's story and to think about the incredible links that activists will go to for animals. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information important, please share this podcast on your social media platforms with your family and friends. That really helps us to find new listeners. We appreciate that support. And I really hope this episode inspires you to go out and do your part for animals. And the best place to start, one of the best things that you can do is live vegan.